Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, the 24th of June. Tom Tilly with you, joined by Jan Fran. How are you doing, Jan? Um, I'm, I'm not doing the best um, just because I live in New South Wales and one of my best mates is getting married this Saturday and everybody's on edge right now. Where's the wedding supposed to be? It's in the CBD. Oh, the city of Sydney, one of those locations that can Very can't much in the middle of the city of Sydney. It's a huge, it's a big fat Lebanese wedding. We already know that only the bridal party can dance. Sacrilege at a Lebanese <laughs> wedding. I don't even know how people are going to get through that. So we're just waiting to see what happens. Well, this might make you feel better. Let's play a fun guessing game. Will I be flying to New Zealand next Friday? (laughs) Um, No, no, I won't be, will I? No, I didn't want to say it. But look, you're probably not going to New Zealand on Friday, Tom. You're not not leaving the city, actually. Mm, More on that in our headlines in just a moment. Um, Also today, uh, our briefing is a really touching story about the way food can help you live with the grief of losing one of the most important people in your life. There's something so obviously tactile and sensory and ritualistic about preparing a meal for yourself and for others. And it is this quiet moment that I can really set aside almost daily to remember my mom. It's quite a beautiful story. That's US Korean musician and writer Michelle Zorna. She'll be joining us for the briefing. She's written a New York Times bestselling book about her mum and food. First, here are the big stories of the day, starting with the COVID news in New South Wales. The Premier of New South Wales says that she is prepared to commit to tougher coronavirus rules after restrictions were ramped up to a level that's not been seen in the state since the beginning of the pandemic. I really want the public to be prepared and to know that this is an evolving situation and the New South Wales government will not hesitate to go further and harder. Gladys Berejiklian there and masks are mandatory in all non-residential indoor spaces including workplaces across Greater Sydney and residents of several inner city suburbs have been banned from travelling outside the metropolitan area. Those areas include where Jan and I live. Indeed. And, I mean, this is the first time that such a wide-ranging mask order has been put in place in New South Wales since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I can't remember the last time we were asked to wear masks in the workplace. And these new rules have basically been sparked by what was a sort of flurry of local cases yesterday. 16 new local cases were announced in the state yesterday, with eight of those stemming from a birthday party in the city's southwest near Campbelltown, and that was a party where someone from the Bondi cluster went to the party and spread the virus to others. Yeah, New South Wales Health Minister Brad Hazard says that the Delta variant cases are particularly concerning. I'm as worried right now as I have been at any time since January last year. Mm, So basically people are watching to see if Gladys is going to call a lockdown today or tomorrow. I think so. And look, depends what time you're listening to this podcast. That may have already happened. (laughs) Um, But I think one of the key differences here is that variant, which does seem to be a little bit more transmissible. You know, we've been hearing a lot about fleeting contact. So I think people need to act fast, probably a little bit faster than maybe what they would have acted if this had happened last year and it wasn't that variant. Meanwhile, restrictions are loosening up in Melbourne. Well, how the tables have turned. I know, a tale of two states. You know what? Good for you guys. Uh, Melbournians will be allowed up to 15 visitors um, in their homes and crowds will be allowed back at sporting matches. They love a good sport, the Melbournians. They love the sport. Uh, Yeah, so the Sydney restrictions mean that the A-League Grand Final on Sunday will now happen in Melbourne and the Swans Giants AFL teams 
have also moved to Melbourne to play their games. Yeah, um, the good news is that Victoria has gone two consecutive days without recording a local infection. Two donut dates. And the Billawila Tamil family have been given a three-month bridging visa to stay in Australia as their youngest daughter continues to undergo medical treatment. So Immigration Minister Alex Hawke yesterday intervened uh, for the second time this month to grant the visas to the parents and eldest daughter of the Murugappan family while the youngest daughter, Tanika, continues to be treated in a Perth hospital. This decision means the family can work and attend school, but Jana Favero from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre told the ABC not giving a visa to Tanika means the family can't immediately return to Biloela in Queensland. They're still not home in Biloela where they belong and which the minister could do right now. So it's just another form of cruelty, another unnecessary delay for this family. So the family is fighting to stay in Australia. Uh, It's still ongoing. They have an appeal with the Administrative Appeals Tribunal at the moment and a special leave application that's still before the High Court. Basically, they're applying for asylum. The eldest daughter and the mother and the father have all exhausted their avenues, so it lays with the youngest daughter, Tanika, being granted that asylum, and that seems to be a very long and drawn-out process. Ben Robert Smith has admitted to burning a laptop hard drive in 2018, but he's denied it was due to investigations into his conduct in Afghanistan. So the former SAS commander is suing the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and the Canberra Times for defamation and he is admitted to burning the hard drive while being questioned by a lawyer for the newspapers. In the stand, he denied suggestions he did it because he was panicked by an AFP investigation into him and said it was something he'd done twice before. Mr Robert Smith has denied allegations that he bullied and intimidated SAS colleagues because he was worried about them speaking to the media. And several former employees of Sony Music Australia have approached a law firm to investigate launching a class action against the Australian arm of the global music empire. Yeah, so lawyers for a Sydney firm have told nine newspapers that they've been approached by a number of women seeking legal advice over claims of bullying and harassment. This comes after Sony launched an investigation into its own workplace culture in the Australian office. Yeah, now this investigation... It's being led out of the Sony head office in New York. The CEO of Sony, Dennis Handlin, has been removed. Now, I'm not suggesting any wrongdoing in this situation, but there's certainly signs of a shake-up here in the Australian arm. In April, though, Sony Music Australia did sack a man called Tony Glover. That was the vice president of commercial music. And this was after an investigation had found that he had bullied and harassed multiple staff members. Now, he's denied any wrongdoing, but there's been a fair bit going on at Sony, at least for a few months. Well, yeah, along with Dennis Hanlon this week, two other executives, including his son, who was the head of A&R, have also been put on indefinite leave. All right, coming up, our story about grief and food. Hey, Annika here. Now, People all deal with grief differently. So on today's briefing, we're going to look at a touching story about the way food can help you live with the grief of losing one of the most important people in your life. Yeah, we're telling the story of Michelle Zorner. She's a Korean-American musician who fronts an indie act called Japanese Breakfast. She's toured the world with that act. Um, She's now written a book about losing her mum to cancer in 2014. It's called Crying in H-Mart. And Michelle writes that after her mum died, she would stand in the aisles of this Korean grocery store chain, H-Mart, 
and cry. And her book is doing really well. It's obviously touched a chord with so many people. It's actually been on the New York Times bestseller list for six weeks. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Um, Tell us about your mother and what your relationship was like in your early childhood years. I was really close to my mom. I just adored her and uh, worshipped her like most kids worship their parents in, in some way. She was my my hero. I admired her quite a bit, but we were very different individuals. My mom was like a very meticulous, stylish, kind of elegant, slightly vain woman. <laughs> and I was a bit more tomboyish and raised in a very American household and so there were some cultural differences growing up with, you know, an immigrant Korean parent and and those sort of became exacerbated in my teenage years. Yeah, I found it interesting the way um, you talked about her love, that she gave you a kind of tough love, that she'd yell at you if you'd hurt yourself. But then she showed her love through her food, essentially through a really deep understanding of what really worked for you, what you really enjoyed. She uh, had a real brutal honesty, um, but she certainly showed her love through remembering what you love to eat. And even just with friends that came over would remember what everyone's favorite dish was, if they didn't like sweets, if they preferred spicy foods. That was her way of, you know, showing she cared. When you are a child who has either two parents who are culturally different from the society in which you're growing up, or even in your case, one, how important is food, I guess, is as a way of keeping those links to another culture and heritage? I think it just is the most natural bridge. Whenever my mom and I traveled to Korea every other summer, the first thing that we would do is eat. And the first thing that my aunts would ask is, what do you feel like eating? So I feel like it's just a really natural way for all families to gather, you know, and during the holidays, you're always sort of communing around a table. And I think it's just a very ancient way of connecting with one another. So by the time your mum got cancer, you were living on the East Coast. Um, You'd grown up in Oregon on the West Coast. Um, And also by that time, you were in your band and you were making your second album, What was life like for you at that point and how did you react to the news of your mum's cancer? You know, I was a passionate young creative, uh, but I was really floundering during this time. I had a like emo punk band called Little Big League that not many people cared about, but I adored and, you know, just kept thinking year and after year that we're going to make it at any point in time. We're just waiting to get discovered and it hit us like a brick because... My mom's younger sister, Unmi, uh, who I was very close to, had just died two years before of a GI cancer, of a colon cancer. And so for my mom to find out that she had a stage four GI cancer, it was like lightning striking twice. But in that moment, you know, being an only daughter and because cancer had been such an intense part of our life before, I knew that I had to sort of set aside all of my creative interests and and go there to be there with her. So how did you respond initially when she passed away and and how did that grief response change over time? I think I was in shock for a while, you know. Um, I've always been a real outspoken person and I found that grief made me very quiet 
and very insular. And it was very difficult for me to connect with other people, especially my age, who had never gone through something like that before. I talk about this in the book, but it really felt like the world had divided into two different types of people, those who had felt this kind of pain and endured this type of tragedy and those who hadn't. After your mum died, you write that you would go to a Korean grocery store and it would prompt this overwhelming emotion that you'd start crying there. So I wanted to ask, how much was your mum's death also, I guess, a grief about potentially losing that identity and that heritage that you no longer have a connection to? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to separate the two, you know, but they were just like inextricably linked parts of of her loss. But it was a surprise, you know, because I think that when you grow up mixed race, it's just this inherent part of you. And then when you lose that parent, there's this new threat that you could have never anticipated that is this even a part of you anymore. I never questioned my sense of belonging in a way to the Korean community because my mom always made me feel like I was Korean in a way. And then after she passed, I felt like if I didn't want to lose this part of myself and this part of her and and something to pass down to my offspring in the future, I would have to tend to it in this way. And I think what's great about that is that it's a living culture. Often our, we try and, I guess, deal with our grief through memories, but this is an active part of your life that you can engage with. Yeah, and it's it's nice. I mean, there's something so obviously tactile and sensory and ritualistic about preparing a meal for yourself and for others. And especially with as someone who doesn't have religion in my life, it is this quiet moment that I can really set aside almost daily to remember my mom in this kind of productive way <laughs> to feed myself and, and my family and also, you know, actively interact with a memory of, you know, things that we ate when I was younger, things that she would make for me when I came home from college, things we would eat in the summertime. They're nice little traditions to sort of keep in my life and and remember her by. A lot of this book focuses on how food helped you process that grief, both during her diagnosis and her battle and ultimately when she succumbed to cancer. So can you tell us a little bit about how you used food and, and how those smells and tastes helped you and your wider family deal with what you were going through? I think that it was mostly a way for me to remember my mother fondly before illness entered our lives. I think there were a number of things at work and why I turned to learning how to cook Korean food. Part of it was being mixed race. I felt like this was a way to upkeep my relationship with my cultural identity. It was also a way for me to just remember a happier time with my mom before illness entered our lives. And also when she was sick, you know, I really struggled to figure out how to really assume the role of this reversal. You know, I really struggled to provide for her in the way that she needed. And so I think in some ways, it was some psychological undoing of that sense of failure I confronted as a caretaker, not knowing the type of dishes a Korean woman might want to eat when she's sick. And I think that that was also a big part of that relationship with food that became so important after she passed away. Wow, that sounds like you you were quite hard on yourself. You're an easy target, you know, because it's a huge monumental 
powerless feeling to watch someone suffer through an illness that feels like you should be able to fix or mend and, and you just can't. And so I think it was a really natural sense of failure that everyone feels in that situation because you're just so powerless. You write that making kimchi uh, became this sort of therapy for you and that really stuck out to me. The moment you go to Korea, it's sort of on every table, it's it's constantly a side with every dish. How much does that smell and that taste sort of not only remind you of her but of your trips to Korea? You know, there's a lot of Korean people who will say a meal just doesn't feel complete without kimchi or you're just not, I don't feel full if I don't eat kimchi. It's like this biological response that I have to this fermented vegetable. I have a real physical feeling. Like if I even like can hallucinate a scent of kimchi, I feel like my mouth will water. And, you know, that's a real comfort to me because it makes me feel like I'm I'm truly my my mother's daughter in this way. And describing that feeling to her would have made her say something along the lines of, you know, this is how I know you're really Korean. And so I just really associate that dish with my sense of belonging to this community that I I shared with my mother. And you're ultimately not just a writer, you're a musician, so you're an artist. So I just wanted to ask how you turn that grief, that huge emotion that so many of us will go through at different times into art. I started playing music when I was 16 and I started writing songs. And even back then, it was always this sort of anchor for difficult times in my life. You know, obviously the things that I was going through back then were uh, sort of trivial in in retrospect. But, you know, if I had a hard day or a hard time with a friend or a a rough breakup, you know, there was something really comforting that you could turn this really painful thing into a song. It could serve as this type of emotional anchor for you, but also help you really investigate what exactly you're feeling, why exactly someone might have done something to you, different sides of the story. And I think that that has just become a big part of my life and how I navigate my reality of just, you know, using art in in all its forms to explore why something's hard or why I feel a certain way. And it has helped me over the years. That was Michelle Zorna, Crying in H-Mart is the name of her book. And yeah, Annika, that point about food being a really active way to deal with grief is what really stood out to me. It's a much more engaging way than just, you know, sort of trying to keep your memories alive. I guess there's more senses involved too. Mm. It's the taste, it's the smell. And I can imagine, especially if you have um, a heritage like she does, it's a way of still being able to connect to it. An incredible story. And tomorrow on The Briefing, allegations the federal government missed a massive opportunity to get more Pfizer doses in July last year. Listener.